welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on August 14th, Lord's Day Service. I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you open our eyes this morning to see your great grace at work in us so that our desires are changed to love you, to fear you, and to obey you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you read this passage and you immediately notice the refrain. It starts in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin. Then verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin. Verse 45. If your foot causes you to sin. Verse 47. If your eye causes you to sin. That refrain causes you to sin. That refrain is the glue of the passage. Standing behind that phrase is the Greek word skandalizo, and elsewhere it's translated as fall away or cause to stumble. And so in this passage, Jesus warns against causing others to fall away. He's warning against tripping people or disabling people in their discipleship. He's warning against causing them to stumble in their progress in the faith. And so, really, it's more than just cause to sin. It's about causing the downfall of another person's walk with the Lord, in the case of verse 42, or causing your own downfall in your own walk with the Lord, in the case of verses 43 through 48. So how bad is causing another's spiritual downfall? Verse 42, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And so to cause another spiritual downfall is so serious an offense that a quick drowning is preferable. And so verse 42 warns against causing another's downfall, and then verses 43 through 48 warn against actions that cause your own spiritual downfall. And in it all, Jesus wants you to picture sin as a devouring beast. It pulls you into the water and tries to drown you. Sin destroys you. Sin causes confusion and frustration. 
Sin tells lies. Sin is lawlessness. It is destructive to your soul and malicious. And sin, we learn in this passage, is on the way to hell. And it wants to see you and the rest of the world burn. And so in this passage, Jesus is teaching us about sin. And so consider three things we learn about sin in this passage. The first thing we learn about sin in this passage is that sin traces back to body parts. Sin traces back to body parts. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin. You see what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is tracing sin back to physical things, to physical body parts. Hands cause you to sin. Feet cause you to sin. Eyes cause you to sin. And so what Jesus is saying here is that your most formidable temptations to sin come through bodily senses. Your bodily members, hands, feet, and eyes. They are ready instruments of evil. Your hands, feet, and eyes can be used to do righteousness or they can be used for hell-earning sin. In other words, your physical body parts can injure your soul. Your physical body parts can injure your immaterial soul. Your body can be used to either serve your soul or destroy it. And you see this relationship here between body and soul. And Jesus thinks the body matters. And he thinks the soul matters more. That's why we do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 is the Old Testament passage that lays behind what Jesus is saying here. In Proverbs 6.16, there are six things the Lord hates, and included in the list are hands that shed innocent blood, feet that make haste to run to evil, and haughty eyes. And so in the case of your hands, hands can be used for wickedness or for righteousness. Hands can shed innocent blood. Or you can put your hands on someone's shoulder and pray for them. In the case of feet, feet can be used to run to evil or to run to righteousness. Feet are often the means by which you either walk into sin or walk into righteousness. And in the case of your eyes, well, watch your eyes. Proverbs 6.16 warns against haughty eyes. It's just kind of prideful spirit. 2 Peter 2.14 speaks of the wicked who have eyes full of adultery. So watch your eyes. You can have eyes full of pride. You can have eyes full of adultery. So be careful. Be careful to not fill your eyes with pride. Be careful to not fill your eyes with adultery. How do you take care not to fill your eyes with adultery? Well, Job says in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? And so Job made a covenant with his eyes. In other words, Job made a personal commitment 
regarding what he would and would not gaze at. And the entire design of it was to avoid lust. And in this way, the Spirit gives His people the wisdom of righteousness. And so, we see hands, feet, and eyes need daily discipline, lest they lead you into sin. And the Apostle Paul understood this as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Why does he do that? Because he wants muscles for the girls? No. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You understand? Paul disciplines his body because what he does with his hands, feet, and eyes has meaning for his spiritual task. And in the context of that verse, it's preaching. And so Paul takes strides to make sure his hands, feet, and eyes don't lead him into sin. He takes caution. He takes discipline to make sure he doesn't just happen to randomly walk into sin. He disciplines his body. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do here, to discipline your body, in particular your hands, feet, and eyes, because sin comes through your body. And so if we are going to discipline our bodies so as to avoid sin, like the Apostle Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 9, like Jesus is leading us to consider here in Mark chapter 9, if we're going to do the same, then we need to understand how sin works in relation to the body. And this is something the church has talked about for a long time, for thousands of years. In fact, the church has been using this particular illustration, this particular analogy for thousands of years, and so I share it with you now. <clears throat> Consider the ancient analogy of the two wrestlers that live within each person. One wrestler is the interest of the body, and the other wrestler is the interest of the soul. And they're wrestling within you, and each is trying to subdue the other. And so you have these two wrestlers wrestling within you. And so you may feed, train, and strengthen the wrestlers however you choose. You may feed, train, and strengthen the spiritual wrestler by meditating on Scripture, by praying, by going to church, by giving to the needy, by performing good deeds with your right hand that your left hand is unaware of. Or you may feed, train, and strengthen the physical wrestler by overeating, by looking at pornography, by spending money like a rapper, and setting, settling into persistent patterns of apathy. You have to understand that when temptation to come sin, uh, when temptation to sin comes to you, how you respond to that temptation largely depends upon which wrestler you've been feeding. How you respond to temptation depends on which wrestler you've been feeding. And so, if you've been feeding the physical wrestler in yourself, that just wants more physical pleasure, that just wants more carnal pleasure, even when it destroys your soul, well, when temptation to sin comes, that physical wrestler is going to win. But if you've been feeding the spiritual wrestler who wants soul satisfaction, then when temptation to sin comes, that wrestler will win. And that wrestler will do exactly what Jesus is wanting us to do in this passage. That wrestler will deny the physical thing that's leading you into sin for the long-term benefit of your soul. Isn't this a fun analogy? 
And so, for the sake of this analogy, again, that the church has been using for over a thousand years, pleasure is experienced in the body, and satisfaction is experienced in the soul. And so, so what that means then is that the soul is satisfied after a plate of food, but the body wants to continue eating to experience more and more physical pleasure. And that is how the sin of gluttony develops. Another example of how this analogy plays out. The soul is satisfied with his wife, but the body wants more pleasure, and so it looks elsewhere. And that is how the sin of lust develops. And so people tend to get frustrated by their sin because it's physically pleasurable to such a degree that it's almost irresistible and so they go back for more pleasure, go back for more pleasure in such a way that they're destroying their soul. And they do this over and over again. It becomes a pattern. And yet, in moments of reflection, they realize how pathetic it is. They realize how dissatisfied they are. They realize how miserable their soul is. And so people get frustrated with their sin because, sure, maybe it's physically pleasurable in the moment, but it's not satisfying to the soul. And in this passage, Jesus is saying something that the world thinks is extremist. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now that's an extremist statement in the eyes of the world today. And really what he's getting at here is, you know, if your, if your gambling caused your debt, cut off the gambling. The world hears Jesus say things like this, though, and they think that's an excessive response. But the Christians should hear that as common sense. And so again, Jesus isn't denying that the body is good. The point is that the soul is more important. The point is that we should discipline our body physically to lead to spiritual benefits. And again, let me be clear, we're not talking about Gnosticism here. Jesus is not saying body bad, spirit good. A rejection of carnal pleasure is not the same thing as a rejection of God-honoring earthly joy. Matter is not opposed to spirit in God's world. What Jesus is saying here is that the two go together in such a way that it is better to enter heaven maimed than to go to hell with your body intact. And so Jesus is teaching us about sin in this passage, and the first thing we learn about sin is that sin traces back to body parts. The second thing we learn about sin in this passage is that sin ought to be fought intensely. Sin ought to be fought intensely. Now we have to note that this is a metaphor. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. This is a metaphor. It's an extreme metaphor. Now, why do we know Jesus isn't being literal? Well, there's at least three reasons. First, the Old Testament prohibits self-mutilation in Deuteronomy 14.1. The second reason we know Jesus isn't being literal is because the disciples do not go forth handless, eyeless, and footless. I mean, in Matthew, or to me, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus doesn't say, hey, wait, 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 didn't I tell you guys to get rid of those eyes and hands? No, you don't see that. And third, the third reason we know Jesus isn't being literal is because when you read the Gospels and you read the teaching of Jesus, you know that Jesus knows better than anyone that a person's sinful desires don't just disappear because you cut off a body part. 
Jesus taught that sins like murder and lust burn in the heart. And so, yeah, you can cut off the hand all you want, but that desire to commit murder may very well still burn within you. And so one of the things we learn about human beings in this passage is that there are desires in the heart, and then there are actions in the body. And there's a relationship here between those things. They are intertwined. And, and this is the case not only with sin, this is just the case in general, that you have desires in your heart and you have actions in the body. And so, you know, a painter might lose their hands, they might lose the use of their hands, but that doesn't mean the desire to paint just suddenly goes away. And so Jesus knows this. Jesus knows if you just cut off the hand, that doesn't necessarily stop the desire or the, 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 the craving to commit murder. And so for these three reasons, we know that Jesus isn't being literal. This is a metaphor. And it's an extreme metaphor. And so the question is, what is the metaphor intended to teach us? And Jesus' point, as simple as it sounds, Jesus' point is that we need to take sin seriously. We need to take the sin, the daily sin, that we see in our mirror, that we see bubbling up in our own life, in our own desires. We need to take that seriously. And what he says more than once in this passage is that it is better to sacrifice physical pleasure for the sake of your soul. And so, church, we need to take sin seriously. And as, as rudimentary as this is in Christianity, it's been completely forgotten at least in the last 20 years and probably longer. There's now what we see in the church, let's call it gracism. This is the predominant teaching in the church today, gracism, and often masquerades under the label gospel-centered. But what gracism is, is gracism is basically evangelicals who talk about grace incessantly, but are never transformed by grace, and thereby they have completely misunderstood the gospel. They have completely misunderstood the grace they champion on their signs. And what Jesus is saying to the evangelical church is he's saying, stop that. Stop misunderstanding grace. Stop redefining the gospel. What we see in this passage is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is such that not only because of Christ's shed blood and broken body are you forgiven of your sins and declared righteous, but also there is now a grace. There is grace applied to your heart by the Holy Spirit. What's his name again? The Holy Spirit. What do you think he's interested in doing? Making you holy. There's a grace applied to your heart that is now working within you. It's churning within you over and over again to transform you, to make you different. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the grace of the gospel. And so, that then means that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must, we will, we need to fight sin with an eye-gouging-like intensity. And if you don't do that, you are misrepresenting the gospel in your life. What Jesus is saying in this passage is that because of the grace of God that comes through the shed blood and broken body of Christ, we need to pray with sweating blood intensity, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We need to pray with sweating blood intensity that the Lord would separate us from our sin. The point of the passage is that we need to take sin seriously. And... 
this Bible has 66 books in it, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. My particular copy has 1,300 pages, tiny print. Did you know there is not one instance in the entire Bible where God trivializes sin? There is not one instance in the entire Bible where God makes light of sin, where God acts casual with sin, where God gets cozy with sin. And yet we live in a culture, and I'm talking about the evangelical subculture primarily, we live in a culture that routinely trivializes sin, that routinely says not sight. We live in a culture that routinely gets cozy with sin, acts casual with sin, and even in recent times redefines sin. Which means that Jesus' words in this passage are particularly important for us today. For us today. And this passage is needed anytime the church starts to act casual with sin. And so, the question that comes out of this passage to you is, are you too casual with sin in your personal life, in your personal walk with the Lord? Are you too casual with sin? Now, gracism says, uh-uh, you can't ask that. That's legalism to ask something like that. And again, this is where we see that gracism has completely misunderstood grace. This is not a question of legalism. This is a question from the heart of the gospel itself because the gospel is the good news that you were forgiven and declared righteous in Christ and because of the Holy Spirit you are made new. You are made a new creature in Christ, we're told. We read in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, Paul speaks of the new life of the Spirit. The new life of the Spirit. It's a new life. That means it's different from the old life when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so, are you too casual with sin? That is a gospel question. That is not a legalism question. That is a gospel question. If you don't ask that question in your life day by day, you have not understood the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to be a little more specific with that question, are you too casual with sin? In other words, are you too loose with the websites you browse? Because an entire host of temptation is right there. Are you too wasteful with the way you spend your time? Are you too reckless with the way you manage your money? Jesus talked about money a lot. That's a spiritual issue. Do you look at it that way? Are you too free with the anger and insults that burn in your heart and then escape from your mouth? Are you too unconstrained with your words? Are you too casual with sin? That is the question that Jesus is putting to us today in this passage. And the result for us, because of the work of God's grace in our life, is that we ought to find ourselves in controversy with sin. You ought to find yourself in controversy with sin. And I'm not talking about controversy with what, some guy on Twitter that you think is sinful. I'm talking about Controversy with the sin in your heart. Controversy with the sin that is manifesting in your life regularly. You need to be in controversy with your sin. And sometimes that sin is visible and concrete. You know it. You see it. So does everyone else. You need to be in controversy with that sin. And sometimes that sin is harder to identify. You need to be in controversy with that sin as well. And so we're learning about sin in this passage. 
And we see first that sin traces back to body parts. And we see second that sin ought to be fought intensely. And the third thing we see in this passage about sin is that sin's opposite is saltiness. Sin's opposite is saltiness. Look with me at verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now these are, these are confusing verses. So begin by noticing how salt and fire are mixed. Salt and fire are two common metaphors in the Bible. And here, in verse 49 and 50, they are mixed. So what are we to make of this? Well, this is referring to the Old Testament sacrificial system. For example, Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13 says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering, and with all your offerings you shall offer salt. And so the grain offering, which required, which required a lot of fire, the grain offering was accompanied with salt. And salt is so important to the sacrifices that as the post-exilic community rebuilds the temple and reestablishes sacrifices, they say, don't forget the salt. In Ezra chapter 6, verse 9, and in Ezra chapter 7, verse 22. You can't restore the sacrifices without salt. That's how crucial salt is to the sacrificial system. Ezekiel 43:24 also mentions salt with burnt offerings in the restored temple. So what does Jesus mean by saying, now verse 49, Mark 9, 49, what does Jesus mean when he says that we will be salted with fire? Okay, so the first thing is being salted with fire evokes the imagery of the temple sacrifices. So the dead animal that was sacrificed for sin, the dead animal was salted then, verse 49, everyone, because of the sacrifice of Christ, everyone will be salted now. That's what it says, verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone in the new covenant will be salted with fire. And so instead of living in a way that invites the fires of hell, worship the Lord as a living sacrifice because of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, because of the sacrifice of Christ. Worship the Lord as a living sacrifice in dedication to the service of the suffering servant, in dedication to the service of the once-for-all sacrifice. In other words, how should we live? Well, we should live, as Paul says in Romans 12:1, as living sacrifices. But not just as living sacrifices, as salty living sacrifices. Total and irrevocable sacrificial living for the Lord. And so then when you take verses 49 and 50 and then plug it back into the, the passage on the whole, 42, verse 42 through 50, what do you have? Well, here's what he's saying. Instead of using your hand to sin, discipline your body, make sacrifices in how you conduct yourself in such a way that you now live unto the Lord. That's what he's saying. Instead of using your feet or your eyes to sin, discipline your body. Prepare your body. Make a plan. Make sacrifices in your life to avoid patterns of sinning. And so to be salted with fire, as we see here in verse 49. 
is to live in total dedication to God's service because of the Lamb of God. Okay, so now notice how verses 49 and 50 fit together. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Okay, so what's the connection there between verse 49 and verse 50? Well, to put it as simply as I can, the process of salting with fire, verse 49, all the temple sacrifices that that implies, pointing to the Lamb of God, the once-for-all sacrifice. Okay? So in the process of salting with fire, verse 49, that then produces a salty disciple, verse 50. That's the connection between verse 49 and 50. So then, you're supposed to be a salty disciple. That's the point. So what does it mean to be a salty disciple? Well, broadly speaking, as, as, we've, as we've already mentioned, it's about daily living the sacrificial life. But the New Testament gives two, and only two, explicit examples of how Christians should be salty. The first is here at the end of verse 50. It says, have salt in yourself is to be at peace with one another. In other words, if you want to be a salty living sacrifice and you don't know where to begin, here's where you begin. Be at peace with one another. That's the first way you be a salty disciple. And if you're going to be at peace with one another, that starts with those who are closest to you. So, children, that starts with your brothers and sisters. starts with your family. Okay, so the first way to be a salty disciple is to be at peace with one another. And the second place where we're given specific and explicit application about this salt concept is Colossians 4.6, where Paul says there to season your speech with salt. Okay, so you want to be salty disciples? Here's what you do. At least here's where you begin. You start by being at peace with one another, starting with those who are closest to you. And second, you season your speech with salt. That is, you speak in such a way that honors the Lord. You speak in such a way that builds others up in the Lord. You speak the words of wisdom, the words of righteousness, the words of life. That's where you start if you want to be a salty disciple. And so Jesus is teaching us about sin in this passage. He teaches us first that sin traces back to body parts. He teaches us second that sin ought to be fought intensely. And third, he teaches us that sin's opposite is saltiness. And today the church finds itself in the midst of a culture whose moral fabric is rotting. And this rot is bleeding into the church. Nevertheless, going forward, we are convinced that the prospects are high for the gospel of Jesus Christ to have a resurgence in this country. We're convinced that God is up to something and that a reformation is going to happen, a repentance is going to happen. But the church must have its moral vision restored if it's going to seize this moment successfully. And the moral vision needs to be restored in two ways. First, we have to be courageous enough to say that what is normative now in secular culture is in fact sinful. And second, the church has to see that the personal holiness that we see in Scripture is not an optional add-on to the gospel. David Wells says that if the church loses the moral vision of Jesus that we see in this passage, then it detracts from the presentation of holiness of God. 
and thereby trivializes the gospel. And so it's one thing to understand what Christ's deliverance means, to understand what being saved means, but it's quite another to see the transformative grace of God worked out in your life and in the life of others with depth and reality. In other words, it's one thing to know the gospel, it's another thing to live it. It's another thing to be transformed by it. And this is how, when people are being transformed by the gospel, this is how truth catches fire in the imagination and makes Jesus Christ attractive. And evangelicals today are not very inspiring in this regard. They are exhibiting too little of the moral splendor that Christ calls us to exhibit. And it's a misunderstanding of the gospel. Christianity should be marked by transformation. Jesus Christ suffered and bled and died, and in His crucifixion, in His death, He is enduring the guilt of the punishment of the sin for all those who believe in Him. And so when you then look upon Christ and believe in Him, by that faith, not only are you forgiven, because Christ has already received the punishment, but you are also declared righteous. But you're not just forgiven, and you're not just declared righteous, but then you are given the Holy Spirit and grace in your heart, ongoing grace in your heart that transforms you and makes your life a life of repentance. And so, our lives should be marked by that kind of transformation. A transformation from hate to love. A repentance from grumpiness to joyfulness. A transformation from bitterness to forgiveness. But instead, what's happened is personal piety has become little more than this emptied out, blind, gimmicky self-help and psych psychotherapy. And this is an empty vision. This is a terrible vision, and it's an unbiblical vision. It's an empty vision of moral reality, and it's empty because it does not bespeak the holiness of God, which is the very thing at stake in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so without Jesus' vision for the spirit-wrought pursuit of holiness, the gospel is trivialized, life loses its depth, and God just becomes a product to be marketed. In other words, it's impossible to speak about the gospel and to speak about grace without speaking about sin. Why? As we close, why? Is it impossible to speak about the gospel without speaking about sin? It's because those who understand the cross rightly grasp that Christ's death is because of my sin. He is enduring the guilt and punishment that I deserve. And so when you see that, and when you believe that, and you see that Christ on the cross is at the center of God's disclosure of His moral reality, that then becomes part of your new life in the Spirit. And so to stand at the foot of the cross is to stand at the one place where the character of God burns brightest, where grace and justice, where love and wrath all come together in a brilliant glory. And the beauty of the glory of the grace of God is the resolution to the problem of sin. And it's a resolution that not only forgives you of your sin, that not only declares you righteous, but it gives you a spirit, the Holy Spirit, and makes you new. It's a resolution 
that according to the gospel at work within us, and according to this passage, makes us the eye pluckers. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.